Father God, just thank you for bringing Rich here today. And we're excited to hear what you have, what your message for us here at Milford Baptist Church is today through Rich. Amen. Well, thank you. Good to see everybody. Um, I used to work at Christ Hospital, a boarding school in West Sussex. I think we might have a picture. There we go. Um, a, a uniform which is, if anything, distinctive. Um, it, a, re- a uniform that's remained unchanged since the 1500s. And uh, when I was running a boarding house, our new um, year sevens, little 11-year-olds, would turn up to school and they'd be given their uniform. And um, they'd put their uniform on, usually with the help of some older student, uh, a process uh, once described to me as rather like learning how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And when they've got their uniform on, they would strut proudly down the corridor in this long blue coat. And then they'd get to the stairs, and they'd climb the stairs, and almost inevitably somebody would fall over. Because boys are not taught to lift their skirts before they climb the stairs. It was an unusual thing for them to feel they needed to do, and so they'd all fall over. Uh, they got the hang of it eventually. But, but I tell you that story because as we get into this first part of Malachi, uh, you'll find there's some pretty tough stuff in here. And if we're not careful, we're going to fall over. If we're Christians, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Our sin is forgiven because we've asked for his forgiveness. We've trusted in him for our salvation. So we have the righteousness of Christ. But that doesn't mean we don't need to lift our skirts as we climb the stairs of Malachi chapter 1. So I encourage you to bear with us uh, as we move through. Malachi's writing probably sometime around 470 to 460 BC, after the southern kingdom have returned from exile, but before the writing of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, These people are far from God, they're trivialising marriage, they're trivialising religion, they're lacking in social justice, they're growing in corrupt leadership both across the country but also uh, in the the church, if you like. They're failing in generosity, they've forgotten what God has done for them in the past and they've forgotten what God has promised for them in the future. And there are very few faithful people who remain. And their hearts... And their aching desire is that Messiah would come. And it seems to me that we're in a similar situation in this day and age as well. An increasingly anti-God culture that trivialises biblical sexual ethics, that lacks social justice, that is racked by greed, that raises corrupt leaders outside, but also increasingly inside the church. And in the midst of it all, we seek to be the faithful few who await our coming Lord. In Malachi, God rails against relaxed religion. He disallows resting easy. He speaks shockingly about himself and his plans, and he forces his readers to sit up and to take notice. Malachi is an uncomfortable read, although, of course, most people in this day and age don't read it. If we're hoping for warm slippers and a sofa, we're in the wrong place, unless you're on the sofa, of course. (laughs) Or maybe we're in the right place, 
Because God's desire is to drive us out of our complacency and make us dive deep into the life-changing love of God. Malachi has six different disputes. That's what it's made of. God accuses his people of something. They basically say, what? What are you talking about? We'd never do that. And then God gives them the detail. And today we're just going to have a look at the first dispute, which is these first five verses of Malachi chapter 1. So if you have the text, it will be great to have it in front of you. Notice this prophecy is the word of the Lord to Israel, not to the people out there, but rather to the people in the walls of the church, if you like. Not to the nations and the people around who spare no thought for God at all, but to those inside who claim to be part of God's people. He speaks to the church, and it may hurt. So friends, hitch up your skirts as we go up the stairs. Just three things I want to pull out of Malachi chapter 1. The first is the question they ask, does God love Malachi knows all of Israel's failings and all he will need to do to challenge them. And you'd think he would say, sort this out and God will love you again, or stop doing that and God will love you again. But he doesn't do that, does he? Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, or more literally, I have loved and I continue to love you. God is stating right up front that he loves them despite their rebellious hearts. His deepest, his primary burden is to tell them that God loves them. To have another human being love us is a wonderful, stabilizing, joyful thing. How much more is it glorious and fulfilling and humbling and enabling and stabilizing and encouraging and uplifting to be loved by God, the creator and sustainer of the world? God begins by telling his people that he loves them. And sometimes we worry, don't we? Does God really love me? Perhaps we're not sure. We look at our lives, we look at our regular failings, our sinfulness, our waywardness, our inability to walk God's way, and we think, God can't really love me, can he? Or we look at our personal trials and our sufferings and our disappointments. Does God really love me? And in fact, that's how the people respond here. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how? How have you loved us? Isn't it fascinating how how God responds to that. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet Esau I loved. Let Jacob I loved. <laughs> get my words right around. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. They want to know the ways in which God has loved them, and God responds by telling them that he, that he hates Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, perhaps one of the most debated texts in the Old Testament. But before we get to that, we need to ask why God responds to a question about love by telling them that he hates Esau. How is that proof of God's love for his people? Well, think about Jacob for a moment. Jacob was a deceiver, a schemer, a thief, a liar, a coward. He couldn't be trusted and he didn't trust God. He had no moral fibre and no sense of responsibility. And yet, God chose and loved him. Clearly, God's choice of of Jacob did not depend upon Jacob. It was God's sovereign, divine, omnipotent choice to love him. The very point he's making at the end of verse 2. How have you loved us? I love Jacob. God's love is a statement of fact. 
demonstrated in his choice of Jacob. Notice too that the names Jacob and Esau are not just individuals, they also represent nations. God's response to how have you loved us, plural, is to speak about Jacob, suggesting that Jacob stands for the us in their question. Jacob was a man God used, uh, a name God used for the nation of Israel, descended from Jacob. Similar with Esau, God moves directly from talking about Esau, the man, to talking about Edom, the people. And it's helpful to see this because God isn't only saying to those in Malachi's time, I loved Jacob, that guy who lived 1400 years ago. He's also saying, I love you, Jacob, Israel the people to whom he writes. Just as God chose Jacob the man, so he chose Jacob the people. Malachi's writing to God's chosen people. And God's love is demonstrated supremely in the fact of his choosing of a people to be his treasured possession, as he puts it in chapter 3 of Malachi. And in many ways, the question, how have you loved us, is a testimony to their short-sightedness. I mean, for the people of Israel... For over a thousand years, God has disciplined them, blessed them, cajoled them, whispered to them, thundered at them, smiled upon them, all to bring them into a right, living and loving relationship with himself. And even though many nations have come and gone through their history, God has loved and sustained Jacob. So when they say, how has God loved us? We can imagine God sighing deeply because the evidence of his love is engraved across every page of their history. And if you're a Christian today, then you too are part of God's family. You too have that Jewish heritage, if you like, laced with God's sovereign choice and love. And Christians, we have even more. We also know of the Messiah, Jesus, who came, who lived a perfect life, who died in our place, who was raised to life, who was ascended into heaven. We know the Messiah who offers us life, who took our sin upon himself, who bestowed upon us his righteousness. We know the Messiah who prays for us even now. We know the Holy Spirit who lives within us to live and to act according to his good purpose. And we know we have a future full of the glory of the Lord as we reign with him eternally. How has God loved us? How can we even ask the question? because the fact of his love is etched on every page of our lives. And God's love doesn't depend on us and anything in us at all. It doesn't depend on your changing circumstances. It rests only and entirely upon his sovereign and unchangeable will to love. Of course, as Christians, we can't say, we've been chosen, God loves us, aren't we great? Rather, we're not worthy of God's love at all, are we? We're worthy instead of his condemnation. We we bow wonderingly and humbly and we say, we've been chosen, I know not why. God loves us and we love him with all of our hearts. His love is unfettered and ultimate and dependent not upon us, but upon himself. And his final purpose in loving us, of course, is to bring glory to himself which is where Malachi goes in verse 5, isn't it? Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. So Christians here, we are his people, chosen by God, and he has loved us in more ways than we could ever know. There was no merit in Jacob at all, and yet God loved him. There was no merit in the whole nation of Israel at all, and yet God loved Israel. And there's no merit in us, 
and yet God loves us. And if you're not a Christian, you may be feeling you're missing out here, and that's because you are. <laughs> you, do, you do still experience something of God's love expressed every moment of your life. You live, you move, you breathe, you eat, you drink. Only by the grace of God do you still live. But you don't experience yet the depth of his love. And so I'd urge you to become his child, to turn from your rebelliousness, to love him as your king, and to know his indescribable love, which will never perish, spoil, or fade. If you don't love God, then you stand in opposition to him and he to you. But if you submit to him, you will know a love beyond comprehension. So does God love? Yes, absolutely, and in every way. It's his settled, his determined will supporting all that is good and holy and righteous and wonderful. But as I said, climbing the stairs is hard with Malachi chapter 1, because not only does God love, our second question is, yes, but does God hate? This is God speaking. I loved Jacob, but Israel is Esau. I hated. How can this be? From as young as we remember, many of us have been taught that God is a God who loves. But now, here in Malachi, we read, God is a God who hates. And if we speak of the depth of God's love towards Jacob and his people, then equally we must speak of the depth of God's hatred towards Esau and all those who are not his people. From where I sit, you cannot have it both ways. Either these verses are deep in their revelation of God's love, and therefore they're deep in their revelation of God's hatred, or they're shallow in both cases. And I don't think they're shallow. Further, if Malachi wanted to avoid suggesting that God loves or hates individuals, he could have avoided talking about individuals entirely and spoken only of nations. But he doesn't. Instead, he chooses a highly poignant and historical example to underline his sovereignty over individuals as well. He points us to Jacob and Esau, twins, from the same family. Esau just a few minutes older than Jacob. Jacob chosen by God, Esau not. Jacob loved, Esau hated. And to illustrate the fact of God's sovereign choice in loving one individual and hating another, Paul uses exactly the same historical example in Romans chapter 9, doesn't he? Jacob and Esau. Jacob for life. Esau for death. And some commentators fudge the issue here, arguing that hate is really hyperbole for love less than. But respectfully, I think that's gibberish. There's nothing in this text to suggest a ranking or priority in love, of liking more and liking less. In this text, in the original, it is binary. It is yes, no. It is on, off. It is love, hate. Okay, we may say, I'm not sure I really like this God then. I believe in a God who loves everybody equally. I don't like Malachi. And the problem with that is that we don't get to decide what God is like. God is who God is, whether we like it or not. We only have to study and pray and discover something of the depths of the mystery of the majesty that is the true God of heaven. And remember, we've reached the stairs, so we must lift our skirts so we don't fall with our noses to the dirt. Sometimes people say God loves the sinner but hates the sin. Have you heard that? 
I wonder if people have read Psalm 5. God hates all who do wrong. Or Psalm 11, the Lord hates the wicked and those who love violence. Or Proverbs 6, God hates the wicked. It's not as simple as God loves the sinner but hates the sin, is it? The Bible doesn't divorce those two things quite as neatly as we would like. So what in the world does it mean to say that God hates? Well, first, and we must be clear about this, this is not an emotional, guttural, responsive sort of hate. It's not some kind of feeling that God has. As if someone's obnoxious towards God and he reacts with, I hate you. No, no, God is not like that. He's not capricious. Otherwise, we'd be without hope. God would hate all of us and love no one. The hate we're talking about here is a determined and a settled opposition to all that opposes himself. Just as God stands in opposition to wickedness and sin and evil generally, so he stands in opposition to those who live in wickedness and sinfulness and evil against him. To put it another way, if a person is living in rebellion against God, they hate God, then God is in opposition to them by the very nature of his holiness. As Paul puts it, all of us are by nature objects of what? Objects of wrath. That's what we deserve because of our rebellious and sinful hearts. We deserve God's settled anger and his hate against our rebellion. Now think about Esau for a moment. He didn't trust in God. He gave up his inheritance for a bowl of stew. He married against God's instructions. In fact, he married an idolatrous Canaanite woman just to spite his father. He lived in settled rebellion against God. He hated God. And God hated Esau, we read in Malachi. And Eden, the nation that came from Israel, was, from Esau, was a constant source of harm and trouble for Israel. Rebellious, worshipped idols like no other nations, laughed and ridiculed when Israel was taken into exile. In Isaiah, the word Edom describes not only the nation descended from Esau, but also all nations living in rebellion against God and Israel. Malachi uses the word Edom in the same way. Everyone outside of Jacob. Nations deep in idolatry. After all the things that God has done, they worship idols. They live in rebellion against their creator. Their idolatry involved ritual sacrifice, sometimes of children, prostitution, sexual immorality on a grand scale. Immorality not just considered normal, but also applauded. Bit like our current culture, perhaps. And the sinfulness of Edom and other nations around Israel was prevalent and it was blatant. And so God stands in opposition to all of that sin. Jacob and his posterity stands for those who are part of God's covenant people. Israel and his posterity stands for those who are against God and his covenant people. If we are truly of Jacob, then we're chosen by God and loved. If we're truly of Esau, we're chosen by God and hated. What happens to us if we live in opposition to God? What does it say? Verse 2 to 4. What we build and make ourselves rich, in the end, God will turn our work into a wasteland and will put down what we put up. Our inheritance will be left to the jackals. What we build will be demolished. We'll be forevermore under the wrath, the hot anger of God against our rebellion. 
Either we're chosen and loved by God or we're not chosen and hated. It is one or the other. Keep lifting your skirts as we climb the stairs. So God's hate is his settled and determined opposition. It's not some guttural or irrational emotional response. But secondly, God's hate is because of people's sin. There are not many verses in the Bible expressing God's hatred. But there's no verse in the Bible that expresses God's hatred without a direct connection to our sin. It is sin that he hates. And in short, God's hate for the people of Edom is because of their sinful and rebellious hearts. Malachi 1 verse 4, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. God says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called what? The wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. We are by nature objects of wrath. He hates Eden because of its wickedness and defiance and refusal to submit. So there's a difference here. God loves some people because of his mercy and grace in choosing them. He hates other people because of their sin and their rebellion. Why did God hate Esau? Because of his sin. Why does he hate those who are outside of his covenant people today? Because of their sin. All of us, of course, deserve God's eternal punishment. But God loves us if we are his. Or to put it another way, in Malachi, God is settled and determined in support of all that is good and holy and righteous and wonderful. That is his love. And he is settled and determined against all that is bad and sinful and wrong and evil, and that is his hate. And perhaps then the question is not, why did God hate Esau? But why in the world did he love Jacob? And the why in the world does he love us? Hating Esau is the just and right response. God is fully holy and pure and righteous and true. How could he do anything but stand in opposition against the rebellion and the sinfulness of Esau. But the bigger question is, why doesn't God hate Jacob? Because Jacob was rebellious too. The nation of Israel was rebellious. We're rebellious. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible tells us. Esau should be hated for his sin. Jacob should be hated for his sin. And so should I. And yet, somehow, not because of any merit in him, God loves Jacob. And not because of any merit in Israel, God loves Israel. And not because of any merit in you, if you're a follower of Jesus, God loves you. And so God's message here to Malachi, through Malachi is that his hatred of Edom is proof of his love for Jacob. How have you loved me? Well, I, I hated Esau, by which God is saying, that's what I should do towards you. I should be standing in opposition to you in every way, but I don't. You are my chosen people. For Edom, God's judgment is devastating. For Jacob, God's judgment, even though it's severe, is a purifying fire. Either we're part of God's people, saved only through the grace of God and the work of Jesus on the cross, or we're part of Esau, standing against God 
and hated by him. They're serious words, aren't they? We're in the church. We're doing what is right in the eyes of Christians. But in Malachi's day, so now, being part of ethnic Israel, being part of the visible church, is no, part, no proof that we're part of God's chosen people. Not all who come into the church are chosen by God. Some might just look like it. There's only one way to know for sure that we're part of God's chosen people, and that's that we submit to the Lord Jesus himself as Saviour and Lord, seeking his forgiveness, asking for his presence. Does God hate? Yes. Look at the cross, friends. Look at God's anger and hatred coming down upon Jesus as he took our sin upon himself. That's the extent of his hate. Does God love? Yes, look at the cross, friends. As Jesus, satisfying God's anger against our sin, stayed there to the end. That is the extent of his love. So Malachi has been clear. God loves his people. And he hates all in opposition to himself. So what should be our response? Well, it's right here in Malachi chapter 1. Look at verse 5. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Repeatedly in the Bible, God's people are drawn to praise God for two, for two reasons. First, they praise him because of his justice and holiness and honour, as they're displayed in his judgment against those in rebellion against him. And second, they praise him because of his mercy and grace and love, displayed as he chooses to love us despite our rebellion because Jesus stands in our place. The mercy and love of God are brought into stark relief as we see the judgment of God that we deserve. Over and over again, especially in Revelation, we see God's people praising him because he's brought judgment upon his enemies. Personally, I struggle with that. I struggle to have joy when God's judgment comes on other people. But I think that's because I fail repeatedly to understand the depth of the sinfulness of my own heart. To realise how serious sin is. And perhaps if I grasped more clearly and more deeply how horrific it is to rebel against my Creator, perhaps if I grasped more deeply the horror of my own sin, I would find it easier to bring glory to God for coming against that sin. And I would find it easier to live in praise of him who chose me despite my depravity, who paid the ultimate and unimaginable price by giving his life on the cross. As Paul expounds this part of Malachi in Romans 9, surely he is right to urge us to wonder at the riches of God's glory made known to the objects of his mercy. Therefore, friends, if you're not a Christian and you remain in, in rebellion against God this afternoon, that is a dangerous place to be. Don't play at religion. Don't pretend to be a Christian. Don't do the right thing in the eyes of others. Do the right thing in the eyes of God, that you might know his love and not his hate. Submit to him as your king. Seek his forgiveness. And the author of life will bring life. A life and a light you never imagined. And if you are a Christian, remember, God chose you. He loves you, 
from the foundation of the world. Despite what we deserve, he loves you more than you could ever imagine. He loves you. Let's pray together. Father God, as we consider the depth of your hate and the depth of your love, we confess our tendency to trip and to fall. But we do bring you our praise because we know that without you, we are without help and without hope, facing your wrath, which we deserve. And we bring you praise because with you, we experience forgiveness and love and life everlasting in which we will praise the name of the Lord our God forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.